Tonight, the unprecedented arrest and arraignment of a former president on federal criminal charges. What will be President Trump's legal strategy? And what case does the prosecution have against him? And will we see a trial before the presidential election? We cover all the angles as a Metrofocus special report starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I am Jack Ford. Tonight, a special report on the historic arraignment of former President Donald Trump on federal criminal charges. The former president has pleaded not guilty to 37 counts involving willful retention of classified documents, obstruction of justice, and conspiracy. He stands accused of mishandling some of the nation's top secret documents and refusing to return them to government officials. Documents allegedly included, among other things, nuclear secrets. If convicted, former president potentially faces what could be significant time in prison. After the arraignment, Mr. Trump, the frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination, flew to New Jersey for a speech to big ticket donors. Meanwhile, most of Mr. Trump's Republican rivals for that nomination blasted the indictment as a partisan attack. So what now? What are the most serious charges against the president? What did they mean? What will be his legal strategy? And what about the Trump appointed judge who will be overseeing the case? And joining us now to help us understand all of this are Daniel Richmond, who's a former federal prosecutor and a professor of law at Columbia Law School. And also Bernarda Villalona, who is a well-known criminal defense attorney and a former prosecutor herself. So welcome to both of you. Thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. We have a lot to talk about here. Uh, so let me start with the, the prosecution's charges here. And we're going to bounce back and forth. Dan, between you as the prosecutor's perspective, Bernard, I'll ask you to get a defense attorney's perspective on all of this. So I think the good place to start is with the charges. So, Dan, uh, people have heard violation of the Espionage Act. And I suspect most people who know anything about the Espionage Act will probably be thinking, well, wait a minute, that talks about providing aid and comfort to our enemies. But there's more in that statute. Talk about how that statute is being utilized by the prosecution in these charges against the former president. Yeah, the key, the key with this statute, as with many, is to look beyond the title and to look at the particular language um, of the offenses that are created by the statute. And here in particular, um, Trump is charged with willful retention of national defense information. Um, which comes right out of the statute. Obviously, that is not a reference to, to espionage in the classic sense. And I think the special counsel has made an effort not to use the word espionage. The, the counts are denoted as willful retention of national defense information. There are also counts related to obstruction of justice and false statements that um, are, are very much crimes in of themselves, but 
but worked very nicely from a prosecutor's perspective in terms of highlighting the degree of willfulness that um, went into the the unlawful retention charged in the initial counts. So, Bernardo, again, I'll, I'll ask you to, to essentially speculate on what we might see from the defense here. We've seen some inklings of it already by people focusing on that, that spy espionage aspect of it. What do you think the defense will do? What, what, what will they be saying about these specific charges, the willful retention charges? So the question when it comes to the defense, the defense is going to be trying to case in two places. They're going to be trying to case inside of the courtroom as well as outside the courtroom. I think the strongest bet for the defense is trying to case outside of the courtroom because it has bigger ramifications. Why do I say that? We look at the indictment and based on this speaking indictment, we see that there are strong charges and it's supported by strong evidence, people from his inner circle. So attacking that at the time of trial is going to be very difficult. However, what do we know from a jury trial? If this does go to to a jury trial, is that people are part of that jury. So you need to work on trying to frame the narrative and also try to give some information and tailor the jury pool to be on your side because it doesn't matter how strong the evidence is if you can't get a jury of 12 people to find you guilty it doesn't matter so we're working with jury nullification we're working with the campaign as his defense in the sense of look if donald trump wins guess what? He's going to appoint his attorney general that more than likely will dismiss the charges that more than likely say if he doesn't dismiss the charges, he's going to pardon himself and others as well. So that's why I say you have to work it from outside and also inside of the courtroom. If we were to work in from the inside of the courtroom in terms of the Espionage Act, in terms of the willful retention of these documents, sure, the defense can argue Donald Trump, he was lawfully in possession of those documents because he was the former president and he was allowed to have those documents. You can argue it, but it's not right. going to be successful. Yeah, let me, and let's, let's go to that. Dan, how about that? How Because we've seen, with regard to these documents, we've seen all sorts of different positions offered up here. Now, look, again, we say this all the time. This is an indictment. Um, the special prosecutor said no one is above the law, but everyone is entitled to the same protections, which means you are innocent until proven guilty, unless and until, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. But we are seeing sort of a, a series of defenses here. One of them is this notion of the former president saying, no, 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 I can do this. You know, I, I have the ability under the Presidential Records Act, you know, and the question is whether that's true or not. So how do you think the prosecution would respond here to these defenses? And many of them, as Bernardo said, are for the, the court of public opinion, people who may well become jurors. What's the response to the defense that says, no, we have the power. I, as the former president, have the power to declassify these. So therefore, this is not criminal. Maybe bad accounting, if you will, um, but not criminal. What, what does the prosecution say about that? I think that at the core of the prosecution's response is, which which obviously they've thought about and baked into this indictment, is not some technical legal argument about how um, Trump lacked the power, but rather how he knew he didn't have the power. He knew these particular documents were classified. He knew he lacked the power to declassify them. And I think they've made a real effort to to highlight the evidence that they have right now that at the same time will show both 
the lack of declassification and his knowledge of the lack of declassification as well as for extra is not caring. Yeah. I'm going I'm to, Bernard, I'm counting you one second on this, but Dan, let me come back to you because it, you, you, you folks mentioned one thing earlier, the, the term of speaking indictment, right? And Dan, talk about what that means and why strategically and tactically a, a prosecution would use this speaking indictment in a case. No one should look at this indictment and get an impression that this is a normal indictment. If you look at most, the great majority of, of federal criminal indictments, they'll be quite bare bones. They'll give the defendant the what's constitutionally required, that some notice about what exactly the offense is, what day it happened, perhaps what what stocks were involved in the in the securities fraud, um, but not much more beyond it, unless it serves the government's purpose to say a lot more. And here, what we see is an, uh, very much a decision by the special counsel that it does serve his purpose. Um, there's always a downside in putting things in an indictment because you're committed to them. But on the other hand, when you're talking about tapes, when you're talking about pictures, when you're talking about testimony that you've locked in, you're not taking a large risk and you're you're gaining something. You're gaining in the first instance, real clarity to the public about not just what the charges are, but the strength of the charges. It's usually silly to talk about strong indictments. One can't tell about the evidentiary strength based on an indictment. This is one of those indictments because of the detail it went into that you could say, yeah, um, can't be sure yet, but it looks pretty strong if you look at the kinds of evidence that the government stitched together and the way in which that evidence probably is unlikely to be um, messed with on the way to trial. Witnesses' testimony may change slightly, but documentary evidence, tape recordings don't change. And what you get is, yes, an obligation to prove what you put in the indictment to some extent, but you get a way to tell the public what it is that you've done. And also in this case, to tell perhaps someone like Mr. Nauta, we really have the goods against you and it's yeah. seriously reconsider yeah. your position. Yeah, we're, we're, we'll get to that about the, the co-defendant here. Uh, Bernard, back to you if if I can. And you know what Dan just said talks about, it's sort of the flip side of the court of public opinion that you mentioned for the defense. This is now for the prosecution. Okay, we'll get our shot at the court of public opinion. Look at what we got. Look at the words, look at the photos part of the indictment. So Bernardo, let's talk about an, some aspects, some more aspects here, the obstruction of justice charges, right? And essentially the, the concept is, look, uh, it, it, he, he refused not only to return things, but attempted to obstruct the government in, in many different fashions. And one of the most striking is, and you see this in the indictment, um, indications from his own lawyers about what the prosecution says was his attempt to obstruct. Right. Now, let me ask you from a, from a defense perspective, we know that preliminarily prosecution got approval to, to essentially pierce right, the, the privilege between a lawyer and a client and use those words here. Bernard, is, is that issue over? Or do you anticipate that that's going to be an argument, a significant argument, once the case gets going, that, that the defense will try to relitigate that? 
So the issue of the attorney-client privilege and whether it was actually pierced by the crime fraud exception, I believe it's something that the defense has no choice but to bring that up again in this courthouse. So despite a district court judge as well as the appellate court determining that, yes, that the attorney-client privilege was pierced with having to deal with the attorney Evan Corcoran, Corcoran, I think it's really essential for the defense to bring that up. And if it has to, even bring it to the Supreme Court, because that evidence and that testimony is so damaging to Donald Trump that if he is able to exclude the notes of this attorney, if he is able to exclude the testimony of this attorney, it gives him a better leg to stand on. Questions that he can ask and argue in terms of Donald Trump. You hire an attorney. The purpose of hiring an attorney is so you can get counsel. You ask that attorney questions. Well, how about this? Or how about if we do this? Or how about these documents? Or how should I go about that? The purpose of that attorney-client privilege is to ask questions of your attorney and get guidance. So Donald Trump, if this evidence is to be allowed in and he lost the ability of precluding that evidence, his strongest point and avenue is to argue that, look, I was asking questions. I was not directing my attorney to commit a crime. I was not attempting to conceal these documents, to hide these documents, to roughly retain these documents or to obstruct justice. I was asking an attorney who I hired for guidance and asking questions because I'm not an attorney. Donald Trump right. is not an attorney. So right. I think so that I'm, is I'm his doing best what argument. I'm doing, yeah, I'm doing what you're supposed to do with your lawyer. Hey, Dan, real quick on this. I want to get to some other things. But if if that argument is is sustained in the trial level and for whatever reason that testimony goes, not part of the prosecution case, is there still a significant basis for the prosecution to prove these obstruction charges without the comments from the former president's own attorney? I think if if Judge Howell's decision gets revisited by Judge Cannon down in Florida, and um, not reverse because she lacks authority in a hierarchical sense, but um, changed such that this is all deemed attorney-client privilege information. There will be major ramifications, and they go beyond just the fact that that critical evidence from from Trump's lawyers on which some of these charges rest will be excluded. Um, there will be an argument that. The government's possession of that information um, without appropriate legal basis taints the entire case. Yeah. And, and that could be this is there's a little legal uncertainty here about what exactly one does uh, where uh, attorney client privilege information is Im- improperly used by the government. But there is an argument that the entire prosecution would be tainted and needed to be overturned. Yeah. Let's talk about a couple of other things here. And um, one is, and this goes back to the, the speaking indictment. Um, Bernard, I'll ask your perspective from the, from the defense perspective, if I can. Included within the indictment are comments that the former president made years ago, back when he was running for office against Hillary Clinton. And it was essentially a challenge to Hillary Clinton where he definitively said, if I'm president, I will protect the sanctity of documents here. No one will be above the law and and we will enforce the law about disclosing documents. Now, clearly, that's those words are, are very damaging. But from a defense perspective, how do you think you could possibly keep those words out of the trial? 
Well, I don't think that those words, those statements by Donald Trump doing his campaigning in 2016 is going to be kept out. So what do you have to do as a defense attorney? You have to embrace it and give it a spin from the defense perspective. Like, yes, Donald Trump, he follows the law. He follows the rules. He knew that that in terms of classified documents, how documents, how damaging it can be to the country. So that's why he would have never committed these crimes. That's why he would never have will, willfully retained these documents if he thought that he didn't have a right to do so. But he believed he had a right to do so because he was a former president. So you have to embrace it and you have to embrace it with some power in right. order to be able to sell it to a jury because you can't run from the bad facts. Right. Yeah. Hey, Dan, how about that? The defense was saying, OK, you know, maybe I was wrong, but I thought I had the ability, the power to do all of this. What, what's a prosecution's response to that argument? Well, they thought about that. And that's where we come back to the tape conversations that are referred to, where he says, sorry, I can't be classified. Um, it shows a real knowledge of the process, uh, a process that the comments he made with respect to Clinton uh, showed even more knowledge of and uh, complete disregard for it. So I think there's a reason why special counsel led with those quite early on the indictment, because they go to the heart of this consciousness argument that they're going to be making. Yeah. Let, let's move, because you, you both had mentioned that the trial judge been assigned to Judge Aileen Cannon, who we know was involved early on. Uh, when she issued a, an order providing for a special master to review material that was being gathered pursuant to a, a search warrant. That decision ultimately was thrown out by an appellate panel, two of whom were actually uh, appointees of former President Trump. Uh, so, Bernarda, from the defense perspective, this is now, at least for the time being, unless anything changes, and we don't know if any will, but from a defense perspective, are you, how happy are you? Maybe that's the way to, I don't know if happy is the right word, but to have this now as your trial judge, have her as your trial judge. So for Donald Trump's camp, I think Donald Trump's camp is content that Judge Canning is the assigned judge to this case because at least you know one, she was appointed by Donald Trump, but two, based on her back on her past. Uh, reasoning her bad past orders and decisions in this case that you know that she's not biased in the sense of that she's pro-government, pro-prosecution. So I believe that Donald Trump's camp is at least content. But just because she was appointed by Donald Trump doesn't mean that everything is going to go Donald Trump's way. So the defense still has to tread lightly in terms of what arguments they make. But I think at least they know and understand that at least I'm going to get a fair shot. So, Dan, um, and, and we all know that just because previously she issued a ruling that was thrown out essentially by an appellate panel doesn't mean that that would automatically disqualify her in any way, shape or form from this. Um, you've seen all sorts of opinions from people saying, well, she should recuse herself. She shouldn't be sitting in on this. And some even suggestions saying maybe the government should try to to get her off of the case. Is that First of all, legally, is that possible? Secondly, strategically, would that be a good move by the prosecution? I think that, as Bernardo quite rightly said, the fact that one's been appointed by the person who is a defendant in the case is obviously a novel 
issue that's never come up. But I think a judge needs to think about not just how she will be affected, but how she will be seen to be affected. Mm. Um, So I could imagine that she would decide that there is a problem that would require her stepping down. I kind of doubt that will happen. And if she doesn't decide that there's a problem, I think that'd be really tough for the government to have any success removing her. And and there would be a cost to even trying to remove her. Um, One of the things that everybody is so conscious about in this case, particularly the government, is is trying to make sure, at least from the government's perspective, that there's an appearance of real normal process here. Um, And if the government looks like it's getting rid of somebody who is a Trump appointee, which is how it would play, um, the claims of this being a political prosecution um, that are being made loudly outside the courtroom will start to have a little more substance to them. Yeah. I got a, a few more I want to get to. So let me ask uh, quick responses to each of these, if we can. Uh, Bernarda, defense perspective. We hear so many people and allies of the former president and even others saying, oh, this is purely political. This is a political trial. It doesn't belong in the courtroom. Can that argument be made in front of a jury? Just stand up and say, without pointing to any comments by President Biden or Merrick Garland, you know, saying that. But just stand up and say to a jury, here's our defense. This is purely political and you should find him not guilty because of that. Would you expect that argument to be made? Can it be made? It it will definitely be made. I expect it to be made. It's going to be made. It was made yesterday. It's going to continue to be made all throughout this process until the end of a jury trial if we get there. So you got to think when it comes to the defense, of course, we all know this. The defense has no burden. The prosecution has to prove that case beyond a reasonable doubt. So technically, the defense doesn't have to say anything. However, in a case like this where Donald Trump is the former president and he's the candidate for the upcoming election, he can argue that to the jury. This is a political prosecution. Look at others who committed crimes such as this, and they haven't been prosecuted. So again, it only takes one juror. So if I were the defense, you know absolutely that's coming in. It's going to be the and, song throughout the trial. Yeah. Your point is important. In, other, in order to get a conviction, all 12 jurors have to say yes. An acquittal, all 12 jurors have to say is, if you have one hanging out, then, then you go start it all over again. So that, in some ways, is a win for a defense. Dan, uh, you hear people talking about, well, these, these charges carry with them potential of, of decades for each of them in prison. As we all know, there are federal sentencing guidelines. They're not mandatory the way they were when they were first instituted back in the late 1980s, but they're they're guidelines. Generally speaking, and again, I want to stress the fact that we're not concluding that he will or should be found guilty. But if that does, in fact, occur, what kind of range of prison time, if we're talking about prison time, would the former president be looking at? I think the starting point of the analysis, as you suggest, is don't pay any attention to statutory maximums. There are discussions of this is exposing to 400 years. No one that's irrelevant with respect to federal sentencing. Um, A little more relevant is, as you say, the sentencing guidelines. But again, one should be really careful about putting much focus on those. As, As you suggest, sentencing guidelines are advisory. Um, 
they are not just advisory, but always thought to have been done for what's often referred to as the mine run of case, the regular case. The only thing every single person in the country can agree in right now is that this is not a regular case. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the idea that the, even the sentencing guidelines will do very much work um, is, I think, uh, unlikely. I got two minutes left. Two quick questions. First to you, Bernarda. How concerned do you think the defense will be about the prospect of, of Mr. Nada, the co-defendant, getting flipped by the government and agreeing to cooperate and testify against the president? That is behind in the back of the minds of the defense team of Donald Trump each and every day. You got to think if Mr. Nada is to flip, that definitely seals the deal for the prosecution. And that's why Donald Trump is holding him closely, even yeah. flew him in for his own court appearance. And also that his pack, his political pack or a pack that's actually backing Donald Trump is paying for his legal fees. So you got to keep him close if you want to uh, have any chance in this case. Last question for you, Dan. Got about a minute left here. Uh, as we know, there is a presidential campaign that is in, in going full steam ahead here. Uh, we've got an election coming up in, in 2024. Uh, people oftentimes see these cases and they say, oh, it takes a year, year and a half, two years to come to trial. What is your anticipation about when this case might realistically, assuming there's no plea agreement here, and I, I, who knows, but let's assume there isn't. What's your anticipation as to when this might possibly go to trial? I'm happy to be wrong, but I would be really surprised if this case can go to trial before the election. Um, when one thinks of the motion practice, the possibility of serious litigation under the Classified Information Procedures Act, which can involve appeals. Um, so that brings an appellate court schedule in. Um, when one thinks about the, uh, the discovery that will have to be provided, uh, mm -hmm. it really is hard to imagine this case going forward before the election. But again, I'm, I'm happy to be wrong on this. Well, as we said, this is unique in so many ways. We'll have to see how it works out. Bernarda, Dan, thank you both so much. You have been both so informative and so helpful here in giving us an opportunity to understand what this is all about. And we'll hopefully be able to talk with you some more um, as we continue our coverage here. Thank you both so much for so great contributions today. You both be well now. Thank, thank you for having us. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.